In this episode, I want to take a look at the work of W. Eugene Smith. And W. Eugene Smith was probably one of the most prolific, in many ways the most brilliant, and one of the most important photojournalists to come out of the United States in the mid-20th century. If you're not familiar with his work, um, I will say that Eugene Smith can be somewhat overwhelming because of the sheer volume of it. And if you are familiar with his work, you know what I'm talking about. Eugene Smith rarely worked with single images. He liked to work in what was referred to in the 1950s as the photo essay. And the way the photo essay worked, if you you consider where media was in the 1950s versus where it is today, we didn't have the plethora of cable channels or internet or any of those things. And there were several publications, Life Magazine was one of the big ones, that would send a photographer out in the field to cover a story. They would come back and the story would be printed over a series of magazine spreads and multiple images that would work together to tell the story. And Eugene Smith was one of the masters of this medium. And it was one of the things that uh, just really made him one of the brilliant minds in photojournalism. And his work is also very complex, um, as I mentioned, the sheer volume of it. So what I want to do is give you a brief overview of his career and his work today. And in the coming weeks, I'm going to do some additional episodes where we can really dive into specific projects and talk about the work. And so anyway, we'll go ahead and get started with the bio today. Uh, Eugene Smith was born in 1918 in Wichita, Kansas. And by the time he had graduated high school, he was already working as a photojournalist for several local newspapers and ended up going to New York. And he landed a job with the photo agency up there that provided freelance work for many of the big publications up there, including McCall's, Collier's, uh, New York Times, Life Magazine. And one of the interesting things of, about Eugene's work that made him very desirable to be hired was his ability to light interiors. And I think this is very interesting too. If you look at where flash photography is today compared to where it was in the 1950s, a lot of the flash photography at that time was very garish looking. Uh, usually things were overlit. Um, most people put the camera or the flash right on top of the camera and would use that to do indoor photography. Whereas Smith uh, employed some simple techniques, but they were things that nobody else was doing at that time, getting the, the flash off of the camera, um, using that to accent along with natural light within the room, like light coming through a window or a lamp or something like that. And what I love about this and why I think this is such an interesting hallmark of Eugene's work, because this would follow him in his entire career, is that this was not an impressive move from a technical standpoint necessarily because you just didn't notice it. It made the scene feel very natural and I think that is the kind of genius that you see a lot in Smith's work and what makes it really something special. By 1942, Eugene Smith went to Japan for the first of three major trips that he did there throughout his career. And in 1942, he went as an embedded photo correspondent with the U.S. Marines during their island hopping venture between uh, Iwo Jima, Guam, and Okinawa. When Smith began to shoot photos, he went into the war effort um, hoping to get a sense of patriotism and, and pride in his country through photographing the war, but once he got there, this played a very different story. The photographs that he made during World War II are very brutal. In Smith's own words, he was hoping they would provide a reminder of this brutality and, in his words, how stupid it really was to be even at war. Eugene Smith's involvement photographing the war came to an end in 1945. He was on the island of Okinawa and was hit by a shell that went through his left hand and into his face and injured him pretty seriously and it took him about two years to recover from this. During his recovery, Smith's name was gaining a wider reputation based on the work that he had done at this point and he was ultimately invited by Edward Steichen to participate in the Family of Man exhibition and the photograph that was used in there is often considered pretty iconic uh, in terms of when we think of Family of Man, this is one of the shots that comes to mind. It's called A Walk to Paradise Garden, which is interesting because most of Smith's work ends up being photo essay based or series based. And what we have here is a single image that he's kind of known for. 
Uh, it is a remarkable image, and it is significant as Edward Steichen was building the collection at the Museum of Modern Art at that time to include photography, that a lot of what we had considered to be commercial work or photojournalism was now being seen and viewed as fine art. And I think this is a pretty epic contribution to just the history of photography in that sense. By the 1950s, Smith was working for Life magazine exclusively in New York. And this is when we start to see uh, Smith's work mature into the photo essay genre that we know it as today. Now, Life magazine ran a series of photo essay spreads that were widely publicized, extremely popular, and they included things like The Country Doctor and The Nurse Midwife. The final photo essay that Smith did for Life magazine was a story on Albert Schweitzer, and it had dealt with his missionary work with leper victims in Africa. Upon returning, um, we start to see where Eugene Smith um, is a very determined individual with a very clear definition of who he is and how he will work. And it was revealed later that at least one of these images was heavily manipulated before Life magazine ran it. However, the set is still brilliant, but it did sever the relationship. And Eugene Smith quit Life magazine and decided to walk away from the whole thing. Eugene Smith was known throughout his career as having a bit of a thorny personality. And I think that this probably worked for him. I mean, when you consider a photographer who works on this level. Um, the genius involved, uh, and I don't use that word casually, um, he had a very clear definition of who he was, how he wanted his work to be, the standard at which he wanted to work, and that talent shows because not only was he extremely prolific, but extremely consistent. There aren't a whole lot of really bad Eugene Smith photographs. In fact, that's an understatement. They're all extremely good. It's a bit of the Mozart effect in some ways that he just made an incredible volume of interesting photographs. What's interesting is after after leaving Life magazine, he took a job with the Magnum Photo Agency, and his first assignment was to go to the city of Pittsburgh to do a small project that was supposed to take three weeks, and the ultimate goal was to do a series of photos for an urban renewal project. He was given a budget of $1,200 and a $500 advance to go do this. Well, Smith goes to Pittsburgh and begins working. He hires a photo assistant, he moves to Pittsburgh and builds a space with a dark room in it, and the three-week project turned into three years. And it was pretty sporadic how he worked. It was very intense for the first five months and then continued here and there weeks afterwards. But in Smith's mind, there was a story to be told in Pittsburgh that completely transcended the job and why he was there. This is where I think we have a crossroads of not only what is the genius of W. Eugene Smith and this ability to see that there was a much bigger story and something more important there than the client. And this is also where we see kind of the craziness start to begin. Um, you know, the pictures from this series are amazing. The project took three years. At the end, there were over 11,000 pictures that were made. This cost Eugene Smith his first marriage. Um, there was a lawsuit that had come up. He had racked up a ton of debt with Magnum, and it was a complete disaster. What's interesting is Smith was very proud of this volume of work, but at the same time viewed the project as sort of a failure in some ways. I would actually um, speculate that this is what, to me, makes Eugene Smith um, a figure that was way ahead of its time. And when you consider that we have over 11,000 images that exist from this one project, that's more than we can comprehend or display. You can't really do an exhibition that would have a space large enough to accommodate that volume of images. 
At the same time, it would also take volumes of books and to print them at the quality that they would deserve to be printed at would be very expensive. And so unfortunately, this is one of the reasons why we see a lot of times, especially with the book side of things, that Eugene Smith is kind of underrepresented. And in some ways, the quality of books that have been published on his work are not always up to par. And a lot of that has to do with just the sheer volume of material that there is. By 1957, Eugene Smith moved back to New York City into a midtown loft that was occupied by a very young Harold Feinstein, who was moving out, as well as Dick Carey and Hall Overton, who were both jazz musicians. And because there was this interesting mix of musicians and artists living there, and particularly with Hall Overton and Dick Carey's associations with the New York jazz scene at that time, this became the location for all-night jazz jam sessions, which included really a who's who of everybody who was in New York at that time. It included Thelonious Monk, Roy Haynes, Chick Corea, um, Ronald Kirk, and many others. And it, what's interesting is that Smith being the uh, compulsive uh, workaholic that he was, not only began to take photographs, but actually got a series of microphones and tape recorders and wired the entire apartment for sound. And in the next several years, um, started to record and document these late night jam sessions. Uh, when we know this today as the Jazz Loft Project, in the end, there was over 4,000 hours of audio recordings that included everything from jam sessions to some pretty important moments, such as Thelonious Monk talking to Hall Overton rehearsing for a very pinnacle concert series that he did in New York City. There were conversations on the street. There were telephone calls that were recorded. There were uh, TV shows that were recorded, late night radio. It literally was everything. So we had about 4,000 hours of audio that exist and over 40,000 photographs. Most of these are all cataloged and exist today in the archives at the Center for Creative Photography in Arizona. And what's interesting is a couple years ago, the Jazz Loft Project was um, it was a project that aimed to do some cataloging. There was an exhibition and a book that came out of this. Uh, WNYU, and I will link to these in the show description, released a series of basically put together and produced audio tapes that give some highlights of what some of the recordings were like. And there was an exhibition and a book that followed. I have no idea where this project is today. They have a website for it, which I'll link up as well. And it, the last news update had been updated in 2012, so I don't know if that project is still ongoing or not. But either way, the Jazz Loft project Project is a, a, a remarkable documentation of a jazz movement in New York City um, in the 1950s that is like nothing else we've ever seen. In 1971, Eugene Smith returned once again to Japan, this time with his wife Eileen, to stay in the small fishing village of Minamata. Upon his arrival, he discovered what was probably one of the most tragic cover-ups in human history, uh, what we know today as Minamata disease. And at the time, there were people that were suffering these neurological side effects that manifested themselves in these epileptic-type seizures. It turns out, upon further study, that they had been ingesting fish that were poisoned with mercury out of the ocean. At that time, there was a company called the Chiso Corporation that operated out of Japan that made fertilizer. And by 1971, the Chiso Corporation was a, an extremely large corporation that employed pretty much almost everyone in the area. Upon further research, uh, it was found that the Chiso Corporation had been dumping raw sewage, which contained mercury, into the ocean, which was in turn poisoning fish, which was in turn poisoning humans. Minimata disease is awful, and not only was it manifesting itself in adults who were 
consuming mercury, but it was also passed on by pregnant women to their unborn children. And birth defects included everything from blindness and deafness to neurological disorders to basically being crippled. And Eugene Smith, at this point in his career, had quite a bit of power and authority um, based on his name and decided to expose this cover-up for the world to see. And this manifested itself uh, that year in a very well-known photo essay he did called Death Flow from a Pipe. Eugene Smith also released his own book of images from this period on Minamata disease as well. One of his most famous images is from this period, and it's an image of Tomoko Yurimura, who was suffering from birth defects uh, in the bath with her mother bathing her. And it is a beautiful photograph. It's probably one of the most iconic single photographs that is recognized of Eugene Smith's work. Uh, the lighting is absolutely brilliant. It has all the hallmarks of classic Eugene Smith composition, um, from the beautiful lighting aesthetic, also to the human condition that is displayed here and the compassion of the mother bathing her daughter. Sadly enough, one of the things you have to understand is the Chiso Corporation employed a great number of people in this region. And so there was a large amount of hostility after the cover-up of people who were afraid that shutting the corporation down would cost them their livelihood. So there was a great deal of angst between those who were pro-Chiso Corporation and those that weren't. And so it actually, once this photograph became famous, there was a lot of speculation that the Yumura family was benefiting financially from the publication of this photograph, which was not the case. But either way, it was stopped being used around that time just out of courtesy to the family. And Tomiko's father actually allowed the photo to be published once again about 1997. After returning from Japan, Eugene's health was starting to go into decline, and he accepted a position teaching at the University of Arizona. Moved there so he could teach classes on photography and start to organize his archives and his collection there as well. Unfortunately, within a month of arriving, he suffered a stroke. Uh, he did recover from this, but a year later, a second stroke took his life at the age of 59. Eugene Smith, as you can tell from the photos in this bio, is a very deep, a very complex, um, I think at times a troubled individual, uh, somebody with extremely high expectations of himself, and somebody who put his own output of work above everything else, including family and his own health. We're left behind with somebody who is just a rare talent in photography like that. Uh, it's the Mozart effect. He operated at this high level of consistency um, and this enormous volume of of incredible work that we're left with. The problem with Eugene Smith, and I hinted at this earlier, is that I think he represents a man who is still to this day ahead of his time. And when you look at the sheer volume of work at the high level of consistency which he produced, the way I like to think of Eugene Smith, um, to put it in a metaphor, is like this. Um, you know, imagine walking, you're on vacation, you're walking down the street, and you come up upon a temple or a cathedral um, that is this, you know, some kind of religious building with this beautiful structure outside and this monstrosity to it that is just epic in proportion and it has these beautiful stained glass windows and these small port windows and you can look through these portals and you can start to see hints of the inside uh, where you see even more stunning architecture and you see objects of religious significance that transcend humanity and I know this is getting a little colorful but that's what Eugene Smith is like to me. You can't go in. All we can do is kind of look at this from these portals and when I say that I mean that because of the volume. If you consider Pittsburgh as over 11 
11,000 images, and the Jazz Loft project is 40,000. Um, we can never see these works in their, in their entirety. And seeing that Pittsburgh was a series and a unified project that Smith viewed and was very proud of, even though he saw it as a failure, how do you display that? How do you go about showing that to people? And that becomes the challenge with Eugene Smith. You can do an exhibition, but what kind of space do you have to have, even for Pittsburgh, with 11,000 images in it? Um, people's attention spans, even, I think, are at play there. Or even publishing books. You would have to do them in such a large volume, at such a high quality, that it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to do. And so Eugene Smith is extremely interesting to me, and he is an amazing photographer, but that's kind of how I feel about his work sometimes, is that you know, we have glimpses through things that have been published that are known, but there's so much more that's there that, that has been not been uncovered. And I think that's on the one hand one of the things that, that is, you know, the sheer brilliance of what went on with Eugene Smith. The second thing, and I think this is the most, most important thing I think that made him, when I use the word genius, I don't use it lightly, lightly with Eugene Smith. Eugene Smith um, was a photojournalist and had very strong ethics um, that, you know, he held himself to a standard to and he held clients to a standard to. He had a very specific way of working. It was his way or the highway when he worked with people and a lot of times, um, you know, this kind of nature created a lot of friction with clients. It cost him his relationship with Life Magazine. Actually, really early in his career, Newsweek tried to get him to shoot medium format and he just quit and said, I'm going to go work for Life because they'll let me shoot 35 millimeter. And, you know, when you look Look at what an artist's vision is and what their integrity is. Um, you know, equipment is. Uh, you know, he needs to use what he was comfortable with, and so uh, you know, it's really easy for us as photographers to understand that situation. But it didn't matter what professional circumstances got in the way. Smith did what he did. Uh, the shots were never set up. He worked um, within the strict confines, confinements of photojournalism, even quitting Life Magazine over the Albert, Albert Schweitzer shots. And I think this is important too, because not only do you have somebody working in within these strict confinements of you know only being able to capture moments and be a part of those but when you look at how much creativity smith exuded within that confinement i think that's what becomes the most impressive he shows you what can be done and it is not an easy feat and of course he does it pulling it off like it's nothing it's just like breathing uh, i mentioned early on he became in demand because of his ability to naturally light indoor situations well if you're trying to capture things that are off the cuff in an indoor situation you know, you realize that Smith really had this sixth sense of, you know, before something was going to happen, where the light needed to be, where it needed to come from. Most of these are simple setups, but the fact that he did them is what makes it so strong and so genius, and it what made, made his career, it made him very in demand as a photographer because that was something nobody else was doing. Anyway, I want to look more at Eugene Smith's work in the coming weeks, and I want to dive into some specific projects and talk about them. And uh, it's a very difficult uh, thing to cover him in one episode, so we will continue that in the coming weeks. If you guys enjoyed this video, please remember to like it and share it with your friends. And as always, subscribe to The Art of Photography so you'll always be up to date on all the videos that I produce here. Until the next one, I'll see you later.